Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 13 is where we're at. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we're going to be getting back into the book of Acts. If uh, you've been with us the past five weeks, um, you know that we have taken a little bit of a break. We've been focusing on a series that we've called People in a Purpose, which is kind of more of a focus on our vision and values, who we are as a church, how we see ourselves within this community um, to be a unique representative of Jesus and the gospel here and beyond. Um, what we uh, started doing before we entered into that little series was we were going verse by verse through the book of Acts. And uh, I've been, you know, if you're, if you're part of the typical um, status quo of, of American um, church attendance, this is what the statistics say at least, that um, the average American goes to church once every four to six weeks. So if you're, you are on average of that, you have no idea that we even stopped looking at the book of Acts. So um, that's, that's you. Welcome back. Um, we're in the book of Acts. That's where we're at. Um, if, if you've been with us, you know that, that we took a pause from the book of Acts. We're getting back into the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be picking up at chapter 13. That's where we left it off. And we looked a handful of verses, chapter 13, last time we were in it. We're going to kind of pick it up right there. And I thought, um, because we've not been within this book for um, past five, six weeks, I thought it'd be kind of good to uh, do a little bit of a recap, and I figured rather than me doing the recap, uh, there's a great series of videos called The Bible Project, if you're familiar with that, it is uh, produced, created by a church community called the Door of Hope up in uh, Portland, Oregon, and there's all sorts of great people and theologians and artists and whatnot that are kind of putting together these amazing videos. In my opinion, it's probably one of the greatest gifts to the modern church, like to really understand the core of the gospel, and it's all free. It's amazing. So you can check out, I think it's called like Join the Bible Project. You do a search for it, um, Google, whatnot. Um, They have a YouTube channel, video and all that. Um, All sorts of great material. So what we're going to watch is uh, just kind of a seven to eight minute video uh, recapping chapters one all the way through chapter 12 of the book of Acts. It's done kind of a cool way if you're familiar with their style. If not, you can can check it out. So I'm going to let them play the video right now, and then I'll pick it up from there. Sound good? The book of Acts. It's the second volume of a unified two-part work that today we call Luke-Acts. These were written by the same author, Luke, who was a traveling co-worker with Paul. This is clear from the book's introduction, where Luke says, I produced my first volume, that's the gospel, about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, Luke's giving a clue here as to what this book of Acts will be about. Volume 1 was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Volume 2 will then be about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Which leads to a really interesting point about the book's traditional but not original name, the Acts of the Apostles. While different apostles do appear in most of these stories, the only single character who unifies the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus himself, acting directly or through the Spirit. And so the book would more accurately be named The Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The book's introduction recounts how the risen Jesus spends some 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This connects back to the story of Luke's gospel, where Jesus claimed that he was restoring God's kingdom over the world, beginning with Israel. So he called Israel to live under God's reign by following him. And he was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and then conquered death with his love. 
And so the book of Acts begins with the risen King Jesus instructing His disciples about life in His kingdom. So He promises that the Spirit will soon come and immerse them in His personal presence. And this fulfills one of the key hopes from the Old Testament prophets, that in the Messianic kingdom, God's presence, His Spirit, would come and take up residence among His people in a new temple and transform their hearts. And so Jesus says, when this happens, the Spirit will empower His disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From here, Jesus is taken up from their sight in a cloud. It's an image drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It shows how Jesus is now being enthroned as the Son of Man who was vindicated after His suffering and now shares in God's rule over the world. And so He promises that He will return one day. And so the main themes and the design of the book of Acts flow right out of this opening chapter. This is a story about Jesus leading his people by the Spirit to go out into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. And so the story will begin with that message spreading in Jerusalem and then into the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria full of non-Jewish people, and then from there out to all of the nations into the ends of the earth. This video is just going to focus on the first half of the book. So the Jerusalem-focused section begins with Jesus' followers waiting until the Feast of Pentecost when all of these Jewish pilgrims from all over the ancient world were in the city. And the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples as a great wind, and something like flames appear over each person's head, and together they start announcing and telling stories of God's mighty deeds. And they're speaking in all of these languages that they didn't know before, but all the people gathered there understand perfectly. Now, in order to see what Luke's emphasizing in this story, it's crucial to see the Old Testament roots of all of these images. So first, the wind and the fire is a direct allusion to the stories about God's glorious fiery presence filling the tabernacle and the temple. And it's also connected to the prophetic promises that God would come and live by His Spirit in the new temple of the Messianic kingdom. And so here in Acts, God's fiery presence comes to dwell not in a building, but in His people. Luke is saying that the new temple promised by the prophets is Jesus' new covenant family, the people of Jesus, which connects to the second thing Luke is trying to say here. So the prophets promised that when God came to dwell in his new temple, he would reunify all the tribes of Israel under the messianic king and that the good news of God's reign would go out and be announced to the nations. Luke describes in detail the international multi-tribe makeup of all of the Israelites who were there at Pentecost and who responded to Peter's message. And so the apostles keep calling Israelites to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, and thousands upon thousands respond, forming new communities of generosity and worship and celebration. But not everybody's celebrating. From here, Luke shows how Jesus' new family quickly faced hostility from the Jerusalem leaders. With a really beautiful symmetrical design, Luke tells a tale of two temples. So God's new temple, the community of Jesus' followers, they're gathering every day in the temple courts and from house to house. Now, in between those notices are two stories about Peter and the other apostles healing people in the temple courts, only to get arrested by the temple leaders, followed each time by a speech of Peter claiming that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And at the center of all this is a story about Jesus' followers donating property and possessions to a common fund to help the poor which is really cool, but it seems kind of random for Luke to mention it here, until you realize 
that this was a practice described in the laws of the Torah and was supposed to be happening through the Jerusalem temple and its leaders. So Luke's point here is clear. The new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem temple, to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. And this conflict between the two temples, it culminates in Acts chapter 6 and 7. It's the first wave of persecution. So Jesus' followers, they continue to multiply, requiring more leaders. And one of these, Stephen, he's a bold witness for Jesus in Jerusalem. And he ends up getting arrested, and he's accused of speaking against and even threatening the temple. And so Stephen here gives a long speech showing how Israel's leaders have always rejected the messengers. God sent them, including Jesus and now his disciples. So the Jerusalem leaders are enraged. They murder Stephen and they launch a wave of persecution against Jesus' followers that drives most of them from the city. But it has a paradoxical effect. Luke shows how this tragedy actually became the means by which Jesus' people are now sent out into Judea and Samaria. Now in this section, Luke has collected a diverse group of stories that all show how the mostly Jewish, Jerusalem-based community of Jesus became a multi-ethnic international movement. So first is the mission of Philip into Samaria. It's the land of Israel's hated enemies, and many of them come to follow Jesus. Next we have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul. He was the sworn enemy and persecutor of Jesus' followers until he personally met the risen Jesus, and he then became a passionate advocate on behalf of Jesus. Next is the story of Peter having a vision about how God doesn't consider non-Jewish people ritually impure or unworthy of joining Jesus' family. And so Peter, he's led by the Spirit into the house of a Roman soldier, full of non-Jewish people, and they all respond to the good news about Jesus. In fact, the Spirit shows up powerfully upon them, just as he did to the Jewish disciples back in chapter 2. These themes all come together in the founding of the church in Antioch, the largest, most cosmopolitan city in that part of the Roman Empire. And Luke, he tells us that Barnabas, a Jewish leader from the Jerusalem church, went along with Paul to help lead this church community. And so it became the first large multi-ethnic church in history. It was where Jesus' followers were called Christians for the first time. And it's from here that the first international missionaries were sent out. And so we see Jesus' commission coming true. And this takes us into the rest of Luke's story. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Acts. It's good, huh? It's really good. So yeah, it would have taken me 45 minutes to do that. Um, anyways, plus you wouldn't have got a nice, cool, like, diagram as well. Um, so chapters 1 through 12 is really about the story of this resurrection community of people um, starting in Jerusalem, going to Judea, going to Samaria. Now, chapter 13, which is what we were looking at several weeks ago, and we're going to pick up right back into it right now, is sort of, a, it's, it's the pivot from being a sort of a localized community of, of Jesus people now to becoming a, a, a multi-ethnic, uh, international community of Jesus people, which means, in other words, the church, is, it starts off in chapter 13, says that the group of Jesus people were gathered together in the city called Antioch, and they're praying, they're just having a prayer meeting. And it was in that context that the Lord speaks and says to two of the people that are part of that, Paul and Barnabas, says, I want you to go into all the world. Go into the region 
beyond this area, and they started what was called what we would call the missionary journey. Next slide, we'll show you a little bit of a, a map of this, kind of get you up to speed. And uh, so see Antioch right up there. Antioch is about 130 miles or so north, uh, maybe even a little bit more from Jerusalem. So if you see this area over to, over to your right, Antioch is up in the part of that map over there in the middle. And uh, so you see they went to Cyprus, and they went up there, and that's kind of the, a little bit of the route that they took. So um, up until that point, it was mainly just a, a regionalized, localized movement. Now it's beginning to go forth into all the world, which is exactly what God had intended. Now Paul shows up, and this is actually chapter 13, the very first uh, full-length uh, message that we actually have. It may not be the exact uh, word-for-word message of the Apostle Paul, but it's no doubt narrated by way of Luke, who is uh, the author of this book. And he tells us uh, what, what Paul had to say. So in other words, one of the things I've, I've encouraged you guys to do is that when you read through the book of Acts, it's great to read how they uh, communicated um, the, the message, what, what they said, what did they say, what were the elements that were part of their uh, gospeling. And uh, one of the key elements, which is what I want to look at here today, we'll just kind of look at a handful of things and we'll wrap this up. Um, the, the main message or the main storyline or the main point of uh, Paul's message or sermon or monologue, however you want to look at it, was the subject of what we would call the resurrection. The resurrection was the most crucial point of everything that Paul had to say. Um, the resurrection, obviously, in connection with Jesus. Jesus is no longer dead. Jesus is truly alive. This is a very significant message that Paul passed on. So what I want to do is I want to jump right into this. I'll read a couple passages out of uh, the book of Acts chapter 13. Uh, next slide. We'll just kind of read some of these and we'll jump right into the importance or what I would describe today's message as the reality of the resurrection. Why is the subject of the resurrection so important, so central to what we do, and what we say, who we are? Um, in fact, it's so important that Paul would actually say later that if the resurrection didn't happen, if it really didn't happen, then all that you and I are left with are, are some form of moral teachings. That's all that we have. We don't, we don't really have uh, uh, the reality of life itself. And so it's really important to understand where the trajectory of the, this message of the resurrection takes us. So let's, let me read the passages, and we'll get to look at basically three things. We're going to wrap this up. Acts chapter 13, verses 30 through 33 says this, But God raised Jesus from the dead. And he has appeared to those who had come up from him to Galilee, or to, uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were, are now witnesses to all the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus as also it is written. So we see the reality of this resurrection as I would describe this. What makes the resurrection so significant, so important? So there's three things I want to just really kind of point out about this that we'll look. The first two are actually taken from this passage. And then the, uh, then the last one is we're going to pick up at around verse 43, 42, somewhere around there. And then we'll just kind of read verse by verse through the remainder of the chapter. And we'll kind of wrap that up. So first of all, we see that the resurrection really is this reality that is based in history itself. Another way you can think of it is the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, that the fact is, is that when we talk about Christianity, we're not first and foremost, we're not at all actually talking about myths, 
We're not talking about good stories, though there are lots of mythologies that are around the person of Jesus. A good case in point example of this is if you saw or read the book The Da Vinci Code, which I did both. Um, great book and very interesting movie. Absolutely don't agree with the theology of it. It's not right at all, but um, very entertaining nonetheless. I didn't like Tom Hanks playing the guy in there, but um, nonetheless, it was a good movie, um, I thought, um, at least for entertainment value. Um, it's, it's all about a mythologized Jesus based upon what we would call Gnostic Gospels, i.e., uh, the Gospel of Thomas, which were late dated, which means they were not written during the time of Jesus. They, were, they took the person of Jesus, the historical person of Jesus, and they created all sorts of myths about him. For example, Jesus got married, and so on and so forth. Um, these, are, these, are, these are mythology around Jesus. So first and foremost, when we talk about Jesus, what, what we're saying is that we're not talking about a mythology. We're not talking about um, uh, just a, a vague notion or a hope. We're talking about something that actually historically happened. And, and, and for example, Paul would say this within his message. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead. Um, he's writing to a group of people that were alive, that were familiar with the headlines. They had headlines back in the day. Um, and he says, and he has appeared to those who came up from Galilee to Jerusalem. We are eyewitnesses. So the idea of being able to see and witness and know that this event actually happened is very significant to the formations of what we would call Christianity. It's really important for you to know this because we live in a culture and society today that is regularly and frequently attacking the historicity of Christianity and saying it can't be believed, it can't be relied upon, you can't trust what those people are saying. And in fact, quite the opposite is true. In fact, you can take some of the leading proponents against a historical picture of Jesus, like the typical stuff that Christians would uh, identify. Uh, for example, one of the leading guys with regard to this field is a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. Maybe some of you are familiar with his works. Um, I, I would definitely not put him into the, uh, uh, the conservative Christian camp at all. Like, um, but he, out of his own words, would basically state that there's no doubt. There's no doubt in the historian's mind that Jesus lived, that he died. We know this. We know this. It actually happened. This is really hopeful for us. Um, again, he would not agree with miracles. He wouldn't agree with the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. But again, we turn to other sources to identify these types of things. But the point that I'd make is this, is that typically when you are, the criteria that's typically used to verify something, whether or not it's historically accurate or not, are twofold. One, eyewitness testimony. Did somebody see it? And secondly, you know, it's the, the, the somebody's who saw it, are they reliable, or are they on drugs, or are they prone towards, you know, fanciful hallucinations, or big stretching of the truth and whatnot. I mean, if they're reliable, if they're reliable, then you can take what they stated as accurate. In other words, if, make sure they didn't have ulterior motives, and so on and so forth. Um, so eyewitness account, and it's exactly what, what's stated here. It says, we are witnesses. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of people that witnessed, they saw Jesus no longer dead. They saw Jesus die. They saw him brutally tortured and murdered. And now they saw him actually living, walking, eating, having food, so on and so forth. The second thing that is a typical criteria is um, making sense of known events. So in other words, if you can verify that, that, that Jesus is a historical figure, can we make sense of the events of his life? I think, to be honest with you, there's a lot of scholarly work that's done, been done on this. In fact, if you're interested in this type of stuff, it's kind of geeky. Um, if 
very, very theologically, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of written for more like, like uh, a scholarly type of a pursuit. So if you're interested in that type of stuff, it's a book by a guy by the name of uh, uh, Dr. N.T. Wright, and he addresses this, this big book called the, the, the Resurrection. And so one of the key things that's kind of brought up within that, as well as in some other works that he's done as well, is, is the importance of the cross. Like, why the cross? The, I mean, I'm talking the emblem, the symbol of the cross, right? So if I, if I put the image in your mind, like, think about the emblem, the emblem or the image of the cross. Like, most of us would put that, you know, on the chest of, of a movie star or Madonna or Katy Perry or somebody or, a, you know, a, a, a lead athlete or something like that. And we would think of it in terms of nothing more than a piece of jewelry. So how is it that this, this emblem that was literally, it was a death emblem, all right? So to, one of the best corollaries that we can liken it to would be, let's say, for example, today, you were to meet someone in the street, and they had this, like, funky little box, like, like oh, that looks like a room. What is that? They're like, oh, it's a gas chamber. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Nazi gas chamber. You'd be like, what the heck is wrong with you? Like, like why do you have a, are you racist? Like, what, what is wrong with you? Like, how dare you have a symbol or an emblem of a gas chamber? Like, that is, that is so non-PC. Like, how can you do that? Um, it, it would have that sense of offensiveness. Does that make sense? And that's exactly how the cross would have been. Like, first century, you would not wear jewelry or have an emblem put into your Bible, if you even had Bibles, if you didn't have Bibles back then. You wouldn't walk around with a T-shirt that has a cross on it at all because the cross carried with it this, this, um, this image, this, this connotation of, of deeply offensive. In fact, it, um, uh, an early first century writer basically said something to the, to the effect that you don't even talk about crucifixion. In, in proper conversation. Like, just, you don't even talk about it because it is so uh, horrifically brutal that you just would not talk about the idea of the crucifixion, let alone draw an image of the cross. So how did this image that is deeply offensive and has deep uh, cultural baggage attached to it, how did this image that was to be avoided within a generation become the image that was celebrated? How is that possible? I mean, think about that. Can you imagine in your, in your lifetime, in your lifetime, all right, think about this, in your lifetime, so when you're 80, it's all cool to wear, like, gas chamber, like, paraphernalia. Like, oh, that's cool. What's up? I got my gas chamber. Like, you know, it's all cool. Yeah. Jews are killed there. What up? You know, it's like, like, imagine in your lifetime that becoming cool. Wouldn't happen. But the cross became a symbol that lost its cultural offensiveness. How? Because early Christians realized that Jesus conquered the cross. Something happened. Something happened that radically undid the stigma around this deeply offensive image. And, and, and historians have to look at that and realize what happened. How did this get undone? The answer is the resurrection. Jesus rose again. He's alive. He's not dead. Like, this, this actually happened. So again, going back to the historical element of this, is that first of all, the reality of the resurrection is based in history. And that's all I'm going to say, uh, other than a C.S. Lewis quote. Of course, like, here's a good one. C.S. Lewis says this. Next one. Next slide. I, I think we have it somewhere. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. All right, think about that. 
Like how many of us uh, would be perhaps guilty of treating Christianity with moderate importance? All right, this is somebody that's like, ah, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, I try to live my life, try to figure out how he fits into it all. I try to figure out how to make sense of how does he inform my life and speak into my life about my relationships and about my sexuality and about you know, whether or not I should do certain things and act certain ways. Yeah, I try to figure out how to fit him into the rest of my life. You understand? That is treating Christianity with moderate importance. That's the very thing that C.S. Lewis says you cannot do because if he is not resurrected from the dead, Christianity is of no significance. Right? None. It'd be better to go surfing on Sundays, is what I'm trying to say. Or go hike Madonna or Bishop or whatever you want to do. It's better to do that than to sit in a room around chairs and listen to music and all those other stuff as that. As great as fun as it might be. But the fact of the matter is there's no importance or no significance whatsoever. Or if, if Jesus did rise again from the dead, then that means that everything about our life has been changed. Everything about our life has been impacted or there's something that God has to say about the relationships we have, how we see our sexual life, how we view life, how we treat our job, how we think about our money, how we think about everything in relation to whatever happened on the cross, which leads me to the next thing. Is that the resurrection really is a reality that was fulfilled in Scripture. It's a reality that was fulfilled in Scripture, which is the second thing. Acts 13, verse 32, go through this pretty quickly, and I'll move on to the last one. That Paul says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled by raising Jesus as it is written. There's a lot of other passages I can point to. The book of Luke points out some of these other ones. In fact, why don't we just put it up there right there? I won't read it, but you can just check it out by way of reference if you're interested. Luke chapter 24. But the big idea is this, is that um, the idea of the resurrection, Jesus rising again from the dead, Paul, very clearly within his message, states that this didn't just randomly happen, that this was all part of God's, what we would say, scripture, or if you want to think of it this way, God's script. God storyboarded this entire thing we call the resurrection. It was all part of God's plan. God designed it. God ordained it. God worked it out. God made it happen because death is not more powerful than God. That's really good news. Like that, if, I mean, if we were, let's just hypothetically say, if we were the type of church community that throws out amens or hallelujahs every once in a while, that would be the spot, right? That would be the spot to be like, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen, you know, right? But the fact matters is that death is not greater than or more powerful than God. God overcame death in the grave by raising Jesus from the dead. Amen. Amen. Good job. That was... That was a good start. Good start. Keep it up. But the point that I would make is that it is rooted in Scripture. This is all part of Paul's message, that God was up to something. It wasn't just random. It didn't just happen. God was doing this. It was all in fulfillment of everything that he's already spoken aforetime. Now, to wrap this up with the final thing is that we also see that the resurrection really is this reality that reshapes Everything. It reshapes everything. And this is where we pick up the story now in Acts chapter 13, that everything, if indeed Jesus is conquering the death, conquering the grave, conquering death, that means that he is literally launching, birthing a brand new world, brand new reality onto the world's stage. That Jesus' death on the cross accomplished something. 
And the way that we know that it accomplished something is that God raised him from the dead. Um, other scholars would say that this was God's vindication. How do we know that what Jesus taught and said and did and promoted and spoke actually had any bearings or eternal weightiness and, or value in it? Because even though Caiaphas and Caesar conspired together, the nation's rage conspiring to put together God's anointed, even though they succeeded in accomplishing that, God raised his Messiah up above death. He won. Jesus rose. God is the victor. That's the big idea. Basically saying that everything Jesus spoke and did and said is true. That God's fresh new world and reality is breaking into this world and reality that is prone to decay and brokenness and sinfulness and destruction. God is launching something new, has launched something new through Jesus. And the first fruits, the first way that we know this is God raised Christ from the dead. And one of the ways that we identify this, that this new reality has come forth, it's reshaping everything, Paul basically put it in this way. First of all, it issues forth in what I would describe as new lives. New lives. Our lives are made new. And the way that Paul describes this in his gospeling or message is in verse 37 and 39. Paul says this, that God raised Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and that by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. What, what Paul's announcing is that there's a pathway that's been made open to you. It's described as forgiveness of sins. Now, to understand the idea, the big concept of forgiveness of sins, from a Jewish person's perspective, um, it would basically take at least two shapes, all right? For example, at the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, God told Adam and Eve, he says, look, if you partake of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I've told you not to partake of, uh, you will be banished from the garden. So in other words, taking, partaking of this tree that's forbidden would equal or, or, or have a consequence that would issue forth in banishment from the garden. You guys following? This is what God said. He says, it, it, eating this tree, this rebellion will issue forth in banishment. Later, God created and formed a nation called Israel. And God told the nation of Israel, said, if you walk in my ways, you'll have life and light and blessing. If you don't walk in my ways, if you abandon me, if you turn to other gods, if you sin, in other words, if you bring about brokenness and destruction and vandalism to yourself and to your community and to your society, if you do that, you will be exiled from the land which I've given you, the the land, the territory. You will go into exile. And it's exactly what happened with both Adam and Eve. They partook of the fruit and they were banished from the garden. Israel turned from God and in their turning from God, they were cast into exile. And what Really, the big reason behind all that was their sins. Their sins kept them from God. Their sins, as Paul would say later on, uh, I think Romans, he describes it as our sins would separate us. He's kind of parroting the book of Isaiah, that our sins have separated us from God. So what really Paul is describing in this announcement, that because Jesus is resurrected from the dead, that means that a pathway has been made clear so that you can have your sins forgiven, which is another way of saying there is a pathway that has been cleared whereby you can return home. You don't need to remain in exile. You don't need to remain in a status of banishment. There is a spot. There is a place for you to come forth. It's home. 
And home is not just simply a location or a place, it's a person. And this is what Paul's saying, there is a forgiveness to be offered to those. So first of all, the idea of the resurrection issues forth this reality in terms of reshaping our lives. We are made, the way the Bible describes it, new, totally new, which means all of the things that we hold on to that keep leading to constant decay and brokenness and disdain in a sense where you feel grimy and cruddy inside can be washed and cleansed and be made new. That's what it means to have our sins forgiven, to be washed and cleansed. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes people, after sinning, after downloading porn, after having sex in a relationship that is broken and dysfunctional, they want to wash their body because they feel a sense of filth. Jesus says, you can be cleansed and washed by my blood, cleansed and washed by my life, by my resurrection. It's made available and accessible to you, otherwise known as being brought home. This is, this is what we see, that this reality reshapes everything we have in new lives. The second thing we see is a brand new society. And this is where we now enter into the story, because Paul, in telling this message, is describing what God has done. He's going to begin to unpack the, the extensive broadness of, of how this message, how far this message actually goes. And this is where it gets amazing, because like I said at the very beginning, that chapter 13 is sort of a pivot from being a localized uh, Jesus-centered community of people to now literally going to the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, incorporating, inviting people that were once very far off, alienated, people that had nothing to do with Judaism, people that didn't give a rip about the temple or Moses or Abraham. They didn't know anything about this. They were ignorant. They were pagan worshipers. And what we're going to see now is the gospel then beginning to go forth and welcome and invite all of these people, no matter how far off they are. In other words, the gospel literally uh, is for all people. No matter what color your skin, no matter how old you are, or how young you are, how fragile you are, how strong you think you might be, it's for all people. And this is what Paul begins to unpack. So just listen to this, and I'll wrap this up. Luke tells us the story in verse 42. He says, and as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. So Paul preaches a lot of people respond, and we see that there's, it's so successful that people are begging him, please come back next week. We want to hear more of this Jesus message and this resurrection information. This is really fascinating. We want to know more about it. And so they're begging Paul to come back in verse 43. And after the meeting, the synagogue broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke to him, they, uh, he urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44 says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. So imagine that, that however big the city was, I have no idea, probably cities, big cities back in that day might be around 12, 15,000 people, we don't have any clue, but imagine 12 or 15,000 people gathered to hear uh, the message from this itinerant preaching Jew guy who just came from Antioch. Nobody knows who he is, he doesn't have a name, he doesn't have uh, you know, an entourage of people announcing him, he's just a regular Joe Schmo communicating this, this message that literally is turning the world upside down. It's rearranging the order of society in a way that Rome could have never done it. Um, and what he's doing, is they're like, we want to know more about this. And so they come, in verse 46, and it says, And Paul and Barnabas, they spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul typically would go into synagogues, Jewish people first and foremost, and the Jewish people, some would respond, some would welcome the message of the gospel, others, uh, not so much. They drove Paul out. They instigated riots against Paul. And this is what we see basically going on here. Paul's like, look, uh, um, it's important. Here's, here's our you know, MO. Um, we go into synagogues. We communicate the gospel to Jewish people because that's who we are. That's what we know. That's who we hope to see come to know Christ. But we also recognize there may be a rejection of this. And if that rejection comes, then we will then take our message to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, because Paul was not racist. It's as simple as that. Paul was not racist. Paul was not driven or motivated based upon race or color of skin or social economic status. Paul was motivated by Jesus. And Jesus says, I welcome all. And therefore, because Jesus says, I welcome and invite all to come to meet, to be transformed, to be, uh, have sins washed and cleansed, Paul says that we do the same. So we're going to go to Gentile people. This is obviously offensive because verse 48 says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the entire region. But the Jews incited a devout women in the high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district, and they shook the dust off their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. This is kind of an old test, or a way in which they would basically say, you know, we're leaving the city, we're shaking off the very mud that we tracked down our feet. We don't want anybody to say, you guys took something from us. So we're shaking off symbolically the very dust off of our feet so that we can move on. And then it says in verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, you see this overwhelming sense of elation and happiness and joy because the message is being received by uh, Gentile believers, uh, Gentiles. But on the other hand, you see what, what, there's a lot of disruption and frustration. And why is that the case? Because the gospel has this, this sense where it's resetting the order of things. It's resetting a structural order. And what happens at any time the social order is restructured, uh, when you have this new society of resurrection people, you oftentimes will also discover that those who have had control of the structure feel threatened. Those who, those who were the prominent ones in that society who are no longer prominent based upon how much money they have or how much clout they have or how much political power and assets they've been able to accumulate. But at the end of the day, the gospel says all who trust in God's grace are part of this family. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, how good looking you are, how ugly you are. It doesn't matter. You are accepted by Jesus, by grace, alone, through faith, alone. God loves you. God is washing. God is cleansing. God is remaking a family of people. You realize how good a news this is? Because the way that we oftentimes organize society today is based upon haves and have-nots. Those who are privileged versus those who are not privileged. Those who have goods and money and wealth and health care and savings accounts versus those who got nothing. You know, you live in the trailer park. You drive a crappy old car. But at the end of the day, in the gospel, in the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you have or what you don't have. It doesn't matter how good you look or how not good you look. It doesn't matter how you dress or what type of car you drive. What matters is Jesus. 
You realize how good of news this is for us? So, in closing, the question could be asked is, then how does this impact? How does the, the reality of the resurrection impact us as a society of resurrection people? Like, what, what should that look like for us? In other words, if Jesus truly is who Jesus claimed to be and launched what he claimed to have launched, then that means that the resurrection literally reshapes the entirety of our lives. Everything about how we view life is shaped through this lens of resurrection. Does that make sense? It's reshaped through God doing something, God upsetting the powers, God, confli- God, God contradicting and confronting the powers, the current powers that be, the current ones that own the media waves, the current ones that rule and reign powerfully, the current ones that live in some form of accumulated privilege. It confronts all of this and says, I'm throwing it all upside down. And this is where people get frustrated by that. It means that Jesus invites and welcomes all. All who are willing can come. All. He doesn't discriminate. He says, come. But here's the beauty of it. He calls us to trust him, and then he begins to transform us. Where our eyes, our lives, our hearts are transformed and shaped, reshaped to understand life in a way that reflects his goodness. That's the invitation. It's always that invitation. So one of the ways I can see this radically playing out, at least within the next two weeks or less, is within the political arena. I just read a great article by one of my favorite mentors, slash, not real mentor, he doesn't know who I am, but a guy named Tim Keller. A great article on this. Um, and I posted it on my Facebook, and it was, just, it was really, really good. And basically, one of the things he was saying is that first and foremost, it's important for us to understand who we are. That if you are a follower of Jesus, you are not first and foremost a left-wing liberal, nor are you a right-wing conservative. You are neither blue or red. You are neither someone that devotes your attention and your life over to an elephant or a donkey. You devote yourself and your energy, first and foremost, this is going to sound really cheesy, to the lamb, all right? To the lamb, first and foremost. If you are a follower of Jesus, those things may have some level of significance and importance in your life, but if you allow those things to divide, you are making something other than Jesus centermost in your life. You're actually undoing the very thing the gospel seeks to do. You are putting yourself in opposition to the gospel, if I can put it in more stronger terms. When God is always saying, come join me, come follow me, and I will use you to bring forth life and healing and blessing and forgiveness and washing. doesn't mean you put aside your convictions. doesn't mean you put aside some of those things that you hold dear. It means that you put them in the right order under submission to King Jesus first. Foremost, that's really good news because how much do politics divide and all sorts of any number of other things divide? When we are called, first and foremost, if you are a follower of Jesus, to be resurrection people, which means our lives are to give testimony to the resurrected king through all that we do, through how we talk, how we treat people, how we forgive, how we have relationships, how we think about our sexuality, how we think about marriage, how we think about our singleness, how we think about our jobs, how we think about our neighbor, how we think about our enemy. The Bible actually says resurrection people 
have this radical gift of God's very presence living inside of us that reshapes and reorients everything about our lives so that it's in alignment with the heart and the purposes and the plan of a good God who's come to bring redemption, bring healing. Are you in? That's what the gospel is always about. It's an invitation to trust this God. If you're not a Christian, our encouragement to you would be to trust God, to give your heart to him. If you are a Christian, if you are someone that is, you know, pray the prayer, however you want to think of it, is, is to realign yourself with the purposes and the heart of this God and what he's doing in this world. It's not about you just simply calling the shots and organizing your life whereby you can somehow figure out where to put Jesus in. It's about you saying, Jesus, you are everything, and I will figure out how my life aligns rightly or non-aligns or disaligns with you. That's what it means. It will affect every part of our lives. So I invite you to trust this God. So we're going to respond by partaking of communion, singing, worshiping, praying, responding to God. So why don't we all stand? I'll have the worship team come on up. And as they come on up, I want to just take a second to just quiet our hearts. And listen to the voice of the Spirit of God and what he's speaking to us. And we've done this for several months now. It's just a time to pause and think and reflect. Again, we, we live in a world where there is constant noise constantly bombarding us, constantly trying to remind us of how busy we are or how busy we should be, that our, our significance, our value is based upon uh, uh, how much people affirm your artwork on Instagram or how much they affirm and like your stuff on Facebook. That, that, is, that, that is an empty pursuit and it will leave you always hungry for more. It's a drug that will never satisfy. But where we turn to find life is turning to the Spirit of God who gives life. And sometimes it just takes moments to just pause and quiet and tune out other noise, other thoughts, other things, and just focus and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. So my encouragement to you right now is in a moment of quietness, just say, Spirit, speak to me. What do you want to speak to me? What are the things that you're showing me? And just ask him to reveal his love, reveal God's love to you. Trust him. So take a moment, just reflect upon what the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Ask the Holy Spirit to just reveal the heart of God to you show you areas that maybe God is wanting for you to, to submit to him, to surrender, to give over to him. And let's respond. Holy Spirit, we submit our hearts to you. We ask, God, that as we respond to you now, that uh, our worship and our praise and our offering would be reflective of who you are. That we would respond in, in love. So help us to use our bodies, our, our mouths as instruments to proclaim your greatness.